Welcome to Sanity, a podcast to help you keep yours in today's divisive political climate. I'm your host, Audrey Scagnelli, and I hope you'll join me in this quest for optimism in a post-2016 world. We are joined by Professor Steven Pinker, and I just want to thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. Thank you, Audrey. To kick off our conversation, you talk a lot and have written a lot about development, progress, and reason. Uh, your latest book, Enlightenment Now, Bill Gates credits as his new favorite book of all time. You say development is not that every aspect of life is getting better all the time, that that wouldn't be development, this would be a miracle. So how do we, in, in a world right now that can feel very polarizing, how do you recommend that we stay grounded in perspective and seek development without expecting perfection at all times? Right. Well, I'm, I'm not a messenger, but I am a uh, thinker, a psychologist, an analyst. And for people who think about our predicament, the starting point really is to realize that progress that we've made comes about because there are many non-human, non-intentional forces that are grinding us down. The source of our problems is not necessarily bad people, which is, I think, the source of a lot of the, our polarization, the assumption that if there's a problem, someone must have intended for that problem to, to uh, afflict us. But I think the starting point, being very, very philosophical, very... Uh, foundational, is that the universe does not have any mechanism or force that makes our life comfortable and healthy and safe. Rather, uh, the universe doesn't care about us. There's the second law of thermodynamics that entropy never decreases, that is disorder increases, useful differences in uh, order and, and temperature and so on will naturally dissipate over time. So we need to apply knowledge and uh, energy in order to carve out beneficial order. The universe just doesn't care about us. And on top of that, the process that created us, namely evolution, uh, did not shape us to necessarily to, to get along, be happy, to be fulfilled. A lot of the processes of evolution are uh, constantly gnawing away at our happiness. The fact that we are naturally have conflicts of interest with one another, the fact that other organisms are trying to do us in disease organisms, trying to eat us from the inside, pests and spoilage organisms eating our stuff. The biggest challenge in the human condition is the uh, indifferent forces of the universe, not bad people. Not to say that bad people don't exist, it's always going to be a struggle for us to live the kind of lives that, uh, that we value, that we treasure. We do make progress, and the progress comes because we are cognitive organisms. We solve problems. We share our solutions via language. We try to figure out how things work. We also have a, a kernel of sympathy for one another. At least under some circumstances, can care about the well-being of other people, most obviously our, our uh, blood relatives, but also our friends, our allies. There's some elasticity in who we count as among our, our circle, and we can work toward expanding that circle. So my argument in Enlightenment Now is that by building on these kernels of potential for progress, both our cognitive abilities that allow us to solve problems, emotional faculties that can allow us to sympathize with our fellow uh, living things, that uh, when those are mobilized with the right norms and institutions, we gradually succeed. We can chip away at the processes that uh, eat away at us and, and, and grind us down. Man has overcome some of the challenges that forces of nature thrust upon us and has also overcome some of the 
challenges that result from man's own creations, the automobile, for example. Uh, so you, you write that throughout the 20th century in the U.S., we became 96% less likely to be killed in a car accident, 88% less likely to be mowed down on the sidewalk. Now, of course, man created sidewalks and created automobiles. And a lot of your research and focus is about the need for problem solving to fix problems that we have we have created ourselves. Mm-hmm. That is always true. That's right. Looking at problems from a political and polarized lens, Gallup found that less than half, 45% of the country identified as being very proud to be an American. This is the lowest rating ever in history. And uh, since, you know, since this type of information has been measured. This I see as a problem. I think a lot of people that listen to sanity see as a, as a problem. One that perhaps has been fueled by our current political climate and maybe political leaders. Uh, but for a reasonable person who is trying to navigate the environment that we're in right now, what advice do you have for them from the kind of perspective that you have, which is very grounded in fact? Well, uh, certainly it's to not be overconfident in our ability to uh, solve problems based on pre-existing conceptions. Uh, Many of us begin our view of the world with an idea of what a solution to problems like violence and pollution and uh, poverty are, and we should be prepared to let the world know whether we're right or wrong. None of us is omniscient. None of us is fallible. The best of the scientific mindset, namely try to explain things, but ultimately you let the world tell you whether your equation is correct or incorrect, ought to be applied more, more broadly, not just to uh, how to how to cure a particular form of cancer or how to uh, develop a brighter video screen, but also how to, how to reduce crime, how to reduce poverty, uh, how to reduce discrimination, and so on. And when it comes to in, in America also, clearly this is, we're living in a peculiar era where the extraordinary presidency of Donald Trump has managed to alienate both the center and left, that's not a surprise, but of the foundational uh, beliefs of, of the right have been by Trump, such as of uh, democracy and freedom around the world, such as pride in military volunteers who make put themselves in jeopardy like, uh, like John McCain. We're, we're not living in a typical era. Trying to zero in on what is the best of America. I do think it's a valuable exercise. It doesn't mean that other countries don't uh, adhere to these principles as well, but certainly the United States is conspicuous as being a, a product of the Enlightenment. The, it emerged in the uh, late 18th century, the, the heyday of the Enlightenment. Its thinkers like Madison and Jefferson and Adams, and Franklin and Paine were all uh, men of the Enlightenment and, and women. And ideas such as that government is a, an invention, a gadget that allows people to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. The idea that because governments are led by human beings who have all the flaws that come with human nature, such as arrogance, such as a thirst for power, such as an inflated belief in their own uh, wisdom and uh, knowledge, that a viable government needs checks and balance to prevent uh, flawed humans from exploiting the perquisites of power. And the, the, the deeper idea that government and social institutions ought to be justified, rationalized, explained. That is, we don't accept them because that's the way things always were, but we look for, for reasons why we should organize our affairs in one way versus another. That is, to me, and, and I'm an immigrant, so I, I have a passionate 
uh, you know, for the country than, than perhaps native-born Americans. Uh, that, that's what's great, what's great about America, and that's what we ought to preserve and cherish and embody. You quote an economist in the book, Ludwig von Mises. He wrote, if the tailor goes to war against the baker, he must henceforth bake his own bread. You, you follow all that up by saying that exchange can make an entire society not just richer, but nicer. I agree with both The Economist and with your notion, but we're in an environment right now where we are seeing business owners and employees making decisions based on political beliefs. The Nike example with the Betsy Ross flag, Wayfair employees protesting a government contract to send uh, beds down to uh, the border. Do you think we are starting to see tailors taking an interest in learning how to break bread? Or do you think this is more anecdotal? Yeah. Well, there is, I mean, in, in general, there is uh, one of the great enlightenment ideas is that trade is a beneficial force for, for human affairs, not only in making us uh, richer, because no one is skilled enough to build a house, make clothes, bake bread, or uh, prosperity depends on exchanging the fruits of our expertise. Less obviously, trade can be a pacifying force. This is a, an idea from the Enlightenment called du commerce, gentle commerce, that uh, trade puts us in a positive sum relationship. That is, that uh, rather than one person gaining at the expense of another, both sides of a voluntary exchange uh, can come out ahead. To get richer, you don't have to invade your neighbors. You can buy stuff from them instead of uh, steal it. Uh, and it means that other people are more valuable to you alive than dead. So in, in general, trade and exchange are, are uh, beneficial forces for uh, humanity. Now, to apply moralistic pressure uh, on a commercial relationship is not, is not always a bad thing. And, and clearly, we don't want trade to be a, uh, an utterly amoral force. They're just as in everything we do, we take into account the effects of our actions on other people. The two examples you mentioned I mean, strike me personally as rather extreme and ineffectual, but I, I don't think that the general idea of uh, um, carrying out exchange within a larger framework of caring about implications and uh, statements and symbolic value is necessarily a bad thing. You have said that development uh, is not that every aspect of life is getting better all the time. This would not be development. This would be a miracle. We're in a news environment that is increasingly negative and focuses very much on what is wrong and not what is right. Not the number of people that survived car accidents in a day, but the number of people who, who died in them. Uh, now, I think you could argue that that in some ways, the role of media is, is to report on what deviates from the norm. But if we don't understand or have a base knowledge of what the norm is, we could end up with a coloring uh, a world that is far more negative than maybe it actually is in reality. And you talk a lot about these types of themes in your book and, and in other writing. What is one tangible thing that we can do to ground ourselves in perspective to understand that perhaps we as a society are reaching more development, but that it's not an overnight uh, change. I use the word progress rather than development, but we're talking about the same thing. Progress, I uh, document in Enlightenment now, is a real phenomenon. It's not a question of having an optimistic temperament or seeing the glass as half full. It's just a question of being aware of facts, such as that 
Longevity has massively increased. Worldwide, poverty has decreased. Uh, education and literacy have increased. Wars have decreased. Violent crime has decreased. These are just facts that, that many people are unaware of, precisely because the many of the news media have the, I think, mistaken ideal that point of news is to report on anomalies, on things that go wrong. I don't see why the, why the news can't report on the, the state of the world uh, that is an accurate picture of reality, rather than zeroing in on the uh, disasters and the, uh, the exceptions. After all, if you look at a news source, a newspaper or a website, there are many sections that don't just report anomalies, they just report the state of affairs day in, day out, like the sports page. Sports page doesn't only report when a player gets injured or the team uh, loses in a uh, lopsided debacle. They report the, the scores every single day. They report the standings every single day. They report the statistics, uh, up, down, or, or, or no change. Uh, the weather. We don't just, the, the weather section of the, uh, the paper doesn't just report the downpours and the cold snaps, but you get the temperature every single day. The business section, the stock prices, the commodity prices, that in order to avoid misleading people, and surely no journalist can say it's good to mislead people. No journalist can say we want to give people an inaccurate picture of the world. Accuracy is part of the, the professional ethic of a, of a journalist. And I, I argue that that requires giving a uh, picture of the, of the world that is grounded in, uh, in data and in trends so that if a plane crash is reported, people aren't left with the impression that plane crashes are increasing, whereas the reality is they're decreasing. Likewise for a terrorist attack, likewise for a grisly crime, uh, likewise for a, uh, a military skirmish. I don't see why those stories can't be accompanied by a sentence or two that just indicates what the overall trend has been over the last few years and, and uh, decades. Or for that matter, why the papers and uh, websites can't have as a regular feature kind of dashboard of the state of the world, just as they do for stock prices and commodity prices and the weather and the sports, where we see what the crime rate is doing year after year, what the rate of battle deaths uh, is, what the CO2 emissions are, what the emissions of other movies are. How's our society doing? Are we getting better or worse? The business and weather examples are very helpful. And if you look at, there's so many comparisons made between reporting news and we're reporting politics specifically and, and reporting on sports, that it's, it's us versus them, one team versus the other. But this is an anecdote. And I apologize for sharing an, sharing an anecdote because I realize it's not <laughs> based, in, based on fact, but really just a personal conversation. But I, I, I had a conversation with folks that were opening a restaurant a new restaurant, and they, in developing the menu, they pulled the neighborhood that the restaurant was going to take place in, and they asked people in the neighborhood, what, what do you feel is lacking in the area? What would you like to see more of when it comes to food? And the response that they got back was healthy options, healthier options, healthier options. So they developed this menu that had a lot of healthier dishes, it had a lot of vegetables, and they opened the restaurant, they have a big pizza stove, yeah. And the most popular thing on the menu is the pizza and the burgers and then the fries. <laughs> right, yes. So I I joke sometimes that the goal is to figure out what the Brussels sprouts with the maple syrup and the bacon <laughs> that people will still order <laughs> and they'll eat their Brussels sprouts. Um, but you, in, in 2004, you were listed on the Time 100 list. And the, uh, the piece that was written about you in Time said that you had something rare among top-tier scholars. You had an ability to convey complex ideas with clarity, flair, and wit. 
perhaps the Brussels sprouts with bacon and maple syrup of the scholarly community. Um, so what what is it about your style that you think has led to people gravitating to you sharing information that, as you've stated, is widely available but rarely consumed or looked for online when it comes to basing uh, perspective on data and facts? Certainly clear presentation of data uh, visually is, uh, is a key. I don't consider myself to be among the pioneers in that. People like uh, uh, Hans Rosling and Ola Rosling and uh, Anna Rosling, who developed quite uh, remarkably eye-catching and informative dynamic color graphics. Uh, and Max Roser in his Owl World and Data website have uh, creative, interactive ways of uh, looking at data in uh, ways that are, that are intuitive uh, informative. That has to be accompanied with some mixture of human background so that it is not only numbers, but we shouldn't underestimate the power of graphs and data to change people's minds. There is a bit of conventional wisdom that facts never change people's minds, and that is, that's a, an exaggeration. Uh, the political scientist Brendan Nyhan, for example, has shown that even with some politically touchy beliefs, such as whether global temperatures have increased among conservatives, whether George W. Bush's uh, surge in Iraq reduced terrorist attacks among people on the left. People can change their minds when they see data that they, that they trust. Uh, it, is, it is not true that uh, people stick to their beliefs no matter what. Uh, also, even though there is there's some evidence that people do gravitate to bad news because they, as humans, have a bias toward the negative, our, our attention is grabbed by threats, by dangers, and uh, news media can exploit that. But it looks like we've reached a point where um, that has not only reached diminishing returns, but even negative returns, because a growing number of people avoid the news altogether because they feel that it is too pressing, too uh, anxiety-provoking. It uh, evokes a sense of helplessness and despair. So they, they turn away from the news. They figure something is important enough. They'll hear about it one way or another. And uh, that, that can't be good for uh, an understanding of the world. And there are positive developments that take place. Many of them don't consist of something that uh, explodes at 11.17 on Thursday morning in October, but um, uh, processes that unfold over months or years, such as the fall in extreme poverty, such as the rise in literacy, such as countries that become more democratic rather than less. Uh, we, we hear about the crackdowns on democracy. We don't hear about the advances. We don't hear about the countries that have decriminalized homosexuality, that have abolished capital punishment, that have added to protected areas. Each one of these could be a headline. Uh, that sign peace treaties. You know, Nigeria uh, becomes more democratic, or Indonesia, uh, or Sri Lanka. That doesn't make the news. Why can't that be a headline? Just as Hungary cracking down on dissent is, is a headline. There is undoubtedly a negativity bias. So this has been shown in studies that present editors with choice of stories and a choice of ways of framing a particular event and go for the negative ones. That has now reached the point where I don't think we have to worry about people becoming uh, complacent. Uh, rather, people are thinking that problems are so intractable, they're worldless that we may as well just withdraw and enjoy ourselves and, 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 uh, and ours. Or people can be uh, lured to radicalism, to demagogues, who say that all of our institutions are failing, so you've got to entrust me, a powerful, charismatic, strong man. Only I can uh, cut through the uh, dysfunction of our, uh, 
our failing institutions and deliver a better world. Well, we are seeing that type of playbook succeed on, on the right and on the left. You've referred to a headline that The Onion wrote uh, back in 2014. CNN holds morning meeting to decide what viewers should panic about for rest of day. <laughs> I think that says so much. And it also, because of the timing of it, says something about the, this is not a new problem that is caused by recent political developments, but has been uh, a part of the the news media for the past at least handful of years. I know in, in Enlightenment Now, you look at a study that looked at the tone of reporting in the New York Times and the decline in increasing uh, interest in reporting things with a negative light, not a positive one. But you also had just talked a little bit about democracy and democracy around the world. You write in Enlightenment now that the word democracy itself, and as a linguist, your thoughts on words in particular, I think, carry a lot of weight. But you, you write that the word has developed such an aura of goodness as to become almost meaningless. And I constantly see headlines, especially in the space that I, that I am in, democracy is under threat or democracy is gone. Where is our democracy? I think that the word does get thrown around a lot, sometimes in contrite ways. How do we move past having a word lose meaning because of its overuse? There are some threats to our democratic institutions in, in uh, this country, and there are threats in other countries that are uh, even more severe. But um, corrosions of, of uh, democratic procedures, such as gerrymandering, such as unlimited campaign contributions, disenfranchising of voters, failing to confirm judicial appointees until one's own party is in power, uh, various abuses of the mechanisms of democracy for the partisan advantage, the advantage of uh, your team over the other team, that are at least threatening to corrode ideals of democracy and, and may be responsible for some of the erosion of the, of the brand value of democracy, especially among younger Americans who, uh, somewhat alarmingly, are put less stock in democracy than earlier generations did, are more likely to agree to uh, statements like, uh, we need a, a strong leader uh, who can cut through all of the um, procedures and complications of deliberative democracy. The institutions of democracy ought to be sac sacrosanct even if they run against your own interests. Indeed, many of the countries that have unquestionably become less democratic preserve some of the trappings of democracy, like elections, but the party in power uh, can manipulate the, uh, the machinery of elections, who gets to broadcast messages, who gets to uh, attract voters to the polls, uh, so that you get what on the surface looks like democracy, but in fact is a kind of competitive autocracy, that is, uh, which autocrat gets to, gets to yield absolute power. So there have to be a, uh, both a safeguarding of the, the nuts and bolts, the machinery of democracy, isolated as much as possible from partisan advantage of whoever gets to, to, to pull the levers at a given uh, time. And uh, people have to be reminded, and I think they often forget about the, all the benefits of living in a true liberal democracy. By liberal democracy, I mean not just one with elections, but one with uh, respect for individual rights, with uh, open access to the, the avenues of uh, power, freedom of the press, minority rights. There are many parts of the world that currently don't live in democracy, or in the past, not so, not so long ago, uh, lived under 
dictatorships such as Spain and Portugal and uh, Greece and Taiwan and South Korea and most of Latin America, people need to be reminded of how awful life was in those societies where if you expressed an opinion, jailed or uh, killed in the middle of the night, and that democracies, together with the obvious advantage of allowing ideas to be expressed, are conducive to their citizens' happiness in other ways. People are happier in democracies, holding wealth constant. They are healthier. They are better educated. Uh, it is something to uh, savor and to, to bearish, and we should work toward burnishing the, the very idea of democracy. Of course, it's been invading other countries to depose their uh, autocrats and, and uh, force democracy on them. We, we know that that doesn't work, not just from obvious debacles like uh, uh, Iraq, but it, in general, surveys of uh, which countries consolidate democracy and uh, preserve it over the decades show that a violent revolution uh, rarely leads to a stable democracy. When you think about happiness, a lot of your data shows that as a country, the United States has advanced its individual wealth, its health, its life expectancy, but its happiness, uh, the happiness of the individual has not increased at nearly the same rate. And you write about happiness and meaning and the difference between the two. In an environment today that is one where we're spending so much time on screens, loneliness is, uh, is on the rise, how can we seek happier lives or more meaningful lives? And can we seek both simultaneously? Uh, we can. Happiness and meaning are correlated, although they're not the uh, same. You can have a happy but not quite meaningful life or vice versa. Some of the, for example, spending time with friends makes you happier. Spending time with family makes your life more meaningful. Pursuing a, a, a long-term cause inevitably brings frustrations and setbacks, so it can make you less happy. But at the end of the day, uh, it makes life more meaningful. Bringing up children, many uh, frustrations and, and moments of uh, despair and, and unhappiness and anxiety, but people identify children as what makes their lives meaningful. Uh, this doesn't mean that they're, they're opposites, that they're negatively correlated. In general, people who are, uh, have more meaningful lives also have happier lives <laughs> but not. Uh, he, uh, we're in the midst of a kind of a moral panic when it comes to social media. A lot of the claims of uh, increasing suicide rates, depression, and loneliness are based on not, not much data. I remember in the, as a child and a teenager in the 60s and 70s, reading endlessly about the alienation and loneliness and anomie, and you had popular culture, songs like uh, Silence and Ellen Rigby bemoaning how uh, atomized and isolated and alienated life, life, meaningless life become. One can see expressions of that cynicism about society, often by cultural elites looking down at the supposedly empty lives of the masses of humanity for decades, if not centuries. Remember, Henry David Thoreau said that the mass of men lives of quiet desperation. So this is, in general, a kind of, there's a, a conceit of elites, cultural elites, that everyone else leading meaningless lives. Uh, and so we should 
be attentive to signs of changes in, in happiness or depression or suicide. But they, the data that I've seen suggests that the claims of an epidemic are, or a spike are, uh, are not based on facts. Suicide rates globally are down almost 40% in the last uh, 35 years, 30 years, I mean. Uh, the American suicide rate has crept up a bit since its low point in 1999, but it has, it has absolutely not spiked, and it is nowhere near the rates that, that we saw during the Great Depression, the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, likewise, globally, rates of depression and anxiety disorders are pretty much flat over the last uh, 20 years or so. Well, thank you. I feel like that was a very Steven Pinker answer <laughs> to a, a question that perhaps many of us have an in, incorrect or limited outlook on. Yeah, Taylor, the, the happiness chapter in Enlightenment Now looks at some of those data. And then I'll, I'll as, as always, recommend ourworlddata.org. And there's a page on, on uh, happiness and some next pages on suicide, on uh, mental health that uh, give you the best data that we have changes over time in mental health. Can you repeat the, the website name? Our World in Data, that's all one word, .org, and we have uh, the ringleader, the webmaster, is an economist at Oxford named Max Roser. As we start to close, I want to ask you a couple of quick questions. The first is, as a, a linguist, the right and the left sometimes look at specific words uh, and have different personal interpretations of them. So how... Do you think that we can combat that when you have a single dictionary, but the uh, words in that dictionary mean different things to different subsets of the population? Well, avoid words that are bound to be misunderstood, like uh, socialism, which can mean either the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics socialism. They actually have the word socialist in it, so it would be a totalitarian communist dictatorship. Some people associate it with uh, Scandinavian countries, which are regularly rated among the world's when it comes to doing business and, and market economies. So it's a term that should just be avoided. There's no substitute term. They just say, by the word X, I mean Y. Just uh, be, be explicit. Don't, don't use catchwords and slogans and shibboleths but, and, and touchstones, but explain exactly what you mean. When Bill Gates declared your book his new favorite book of all time, that is not an insignificant praise from anyone, and certainly not an insignificant <laughs> praise from Bill Gates. Where were you and what went through your mind when you heard that? Oh, <laughs> well, I, I met Bill uh, Gates a number of times beforehand, and I knew that we, uh, we, we thought in some similar ways, not only in believing that when humans use their ingenuity to solve problems, they can gradually succeed, but uh, also just a general interest in the nature of intelligence, both human and uh, artificial, a uh, emphasis on data as opposed to headlines and, and uh, anecdotes. So I wasn't uh, shocked, but I was, needless to say, uh, delighted. What is something in the past month or so that you've learned that has perhaps delighted you or changed your perspective on something that you, you maybe didn't realize would be changed? Well, certainly uh, a study from the Neiman Foundation, a journalistic organization that um, increasing numbers, a uh, number of People are avoiding the news altogether. That kind of reinforced some of my concern about some of the flaws in the mindset of contemporary journalism. But at the same time, uh, coming across alternative uh, sites that, like Positive News, like Future Crunch, uh, that are dedicated to the idea that 
constructive journalism or positive news does not mean human interest stories. It doesn't mean fluff about uh, heartwarming pictures of uh, puppy befriends and orangutan. <laughs> but there actually are developments such as uh, a new method of preventing the spread of AIDS, such as the decriminalization of homosexuality in, uh, in Botswana and India, such as bans on plastic in uh, plastic bags in uh, major metropolitan areas. All of these incremental stories, a bit of progress at a time, that uh, can be highlighted and that the I find these sites absolutely gripping and I suspect that those stories would gain traction if they were highlighted in, in uh, other mainstream media. Do you think that the intellectual dark web plays a role in highlighting these types of narratives? It's a, uh, it's a facetious term. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think the idea that that there is a mainstream uh, left-to-center narrative that is crowding out alternatives of dissent in uh, universities, uh, increasingly in other official institutions that, of course, are uh, staffed by graduates of universities and carry the political convictions of the universities into them. As Andrew Sullivan said, we're all on campus now, and the culture of political correctness from offices of student life have been imported into human relations and public relations departments of corporations and, and uh, government. Uh, the idea that there are alternative ways of, of, of seeing issues is uh, vitally important. The, the so-called intellectual dark web has some, you know, some questionable opinions, but of course it's a, the, the nature of a marketplace of ideas that there are questionable opinions. And in an arena of free discussion and discord, the flaws in the questionable opinions can be pointed out. That's the beauty of uh, free speech. But the, uh, the monoculture that I, that I think has uh, increasingly infected universities and mainstream media organizations, leading to uh, a uh, mirror image or worse in the uh, right-wing media, Fox in uh, talk radio, uh, cannot be healthy if you, if you have two self-contained arenas uh, in which people stoke up their uh, outrage at people in the other arena without actually confronting their ideas uh, can't be healthy for democracy or for our collective effort to improve our lives in our country. The news buffet that exists today enables any person to select information based on their own personal beliefs and then you create a cycle that continues and continues. Uh, but to close, our final question uh, for all guests on Sanity is, what are you most optimistic about right now? I'm optimistic about the core of people who are trying to solve problems, whether it's climate change or poverty or uh, disease, who are uh, open to the application of human ingenuity to dealing with our challenges, who are uh, becoming sick of the um, ideological polarization and mutual shaming and name calling, and who are uh, seeking out a space for the, the application of reason and sympathy to solve the problems that are besetting us. Well, it is encouraging. I do agree. There's a growing percentage of people that are taking an interest in this space. Uh, well, thank you so much, Professor Pinker, for your time and for joining Sanity. Uh, thank you for having me. 